Chapter Thirty Three of Ruth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons. Ruth by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter Thirty Three. A Mother to Be Proud Of. Old people tell of certain years when typhus fever swept over the country like a pestilence, years that bring back the remembrance of deep sorrow, refusing to be comforted, to many a household, and which those whose beloved pass through the fiery time unscathed shrink from recalling for great and tremulous was the anxiety, miserable the constant watching for evil symptoms, and beyond the threshold of home a dense cloud of depression hung over society at large. It seemed as if the alarm was proportionate to the previous light-heartedness of fancied security, and indeed it was so. For since the days of King Belshazzar, the solemn decrees of doom have ever seemed most terrible, when they awe into silence the merry revellers of life. So it was this year to which I come in progress of my story. The summer had been unusually gorgeous. Some had complained of the steaming heat, but others had pointed to the lush vegetation which was profuse and luxuriant. The early autumn was wet and cold, but people did not regard it, in contemplation of some proud rejoicing of the nation, which filled every newspaper and gave food to every tongue. In Eccleston these rejoicings were greater than in most places, for, by the national triumph of arms, it was supposed that a new market for the staple manufacture of the place would be opened and so the trade, which had for a year or two been languishing, would now revive with redoubled vigour. Besides these legitimate causes of good spirits, there was the rank excitement of a coming election, in consequence of Mr. Dunn having accepted a government office procured for him by one of his influential relations. This time, the Cranworths roused themselves from their magnificent torpor of security in good season, and were going through a series of pompous and ponderous hospitalities, in order to bring back the Eccleston voters to their allegiance. While the town was full of these subjects by turns, now thinking and speaking of the great revival of trade, now of the chances of the election as yet some weeks distant, now of the balls at Cranworth Court, in which Mr. Cranworth had danced with all the bells of the shopocracy of Eccleston, there came creeping, creeping, in hidden slimy courses, the terrible fever, that fever which is never utterly banished from the sad haunts of vice and misery, but lives in such darkness like a wild beast in the recesses of his den. It had begun in the low Irish lodging-houses, but there it was so common it excited little attention. The poor creatures died almost without the attendance of the unwarned medical men, who received their first notice of the spreading plague from the Roman Catholic priests. 
before the medical men of Eccleston had time to meet together and consult, and compare the knowledge of the fever which they had severally gained, it had, like the blaze of a fire which had long smouldered, burst forth in many places at once, not merely among the loose living and vicious, but among the decently poor, nay, even among the well-to-do and respectable. And, to add to the horror, like all similar pestilences, its course was most rapid at first, and was fatal in the great majority of cases, hopeless from the beginning. There was a cry and then a deep silence, and then rose the long wail of the survivors. A portion of the infirmary of the town was added to that already set apart for a fever ward. The smitten were carried thither at once, whenever it was possible, in order to prevent the spread of infection, and on that laser house was concentrated all the medical skill and force of the place. But when one of the physicians had died, in consequence of his attendance, when the customary staff of matrons and nurses had been swept off in two days, and the nurses belonging to the infirmary had shrunk from being drafted into the pestilential fever ward, when high wages had failed to tempt any to what, in their panic, they considered as certain death, when the doctors stood aghast at the swift mortality among the untended sufferers who were dependent only on the care of the m most ignorant hirelings, too brutal to recognize the solemnity of death. All this had happened within a week from the first acknowledgment of the presence of the plague. Ruth came one day, with a quieter step than usual, into Mr. Benson's study and told him she wanted to speak to him for a few minutes. "'To be sure, my dear, sit down,' said he, for she was standing and leaning her head against the chimney-piece, idly gazing into the fire. She went on standing there, as if she had not heard his words, and it was a few moments before she began to speak. Then she said, "'I want to tell you that I have been this morning and offered myself as matron to the fever ward while it is so full. They have accepted me, and I am going this evening.' oh ruth i feared this i saw your look this morning as we spoke of this terrible illness why do you say fear mr benson you yourself have been with john harrison and old betty and many others i dare say of whom we have not heard but this is so different in such poisoned air among such malignant cases have you thought and waited enough ruth she was quite still for a moment but her eyes grew full of tears. At last she said, very softly, with a kind of still solemnity, "'Yes, I have thought, and I have weighed, but through the very midst of all my fears and thoughts I have felt that I must go.' The remembrance of Leonard was present in both their minds, but for a few moments longer they neither of them spoke. Then Ruth said, "'I believe I have no fear.' that is a great preservative they say at any rate if i have a little natural shrinking it is quite gone when i remember that i am in god's hands oh mr benson continued she breaking out into the irrepressible tears 
Leonard, Leonard. And now it was his turn to speak out the brave words of faith. Poor, poor mother, said he, but be of good heart. He too is in God's hands. Think what a flash of time only will separate you from him if you should die in this work. But he, but he, it will belong to him, Mr. Benson. He will be alone. No, Ruth, he will not. God and all good men will watch over him. But if you cannot still this agony of fear as to what will become of him, you ought not to go. Such tremulous passion will predispose you to take the fever. I will not be afraid, she replied, lifting up her face, over which a bright light shone, as of God's radiance. I am not afraid for myself. I will not be so for my darling. After a little pause, they began to arrange the manner of her going, and to speak about the length of time that she might be absent on her temporary duties. In talking of her return, they assumed it to be certain, although the exact time when was to them unknown, and would be dependent entirely on the duration of the fever. But not the less, in their secret hearts, did they feel where alone the issue lay. Ruth was to communicate with Leonard and Miss Faith through Mr. Benson alone, who insisted on his determination to go every evening to the hospital to learn the proceedings of the day and the state of Ruth's health. "'It is not alone on your account, my dear. There may be many sick people of whom, if I can give no other comfort, I can take intelligence to their friends.' All was settled with grave composure, yet still Ruth lingered, as if nerving herself up for some effort. At length she said, with a faint smile upon her pale face, "'I believe I am a great coward. I stand here talking because I dread to tell Leonard.' "'You must not think of it,' exclaimed he. "'Leave it to me. It is sure to unnerve you.' "'I must think of it. I shall have self-control enough in a minute to do it calmly, to speak hopefully. For only think,' continued she, smiling through the tears that would gather in her eyes, "'what a comfort the remembrance of the last few words may be to the poor fellow if—' The words were choked, but she smiled bravely on. "'No,' said she, "'that must be done. But perhaps you will spare me one thing.' Will you tell Aunt Faith? I suppose I am very weak, but knowing that I must go, and not knowing what may be the end, I feel as if I could not bear to resist her entreaties just at last. Will you tell her, sir, while I go to Leonard? Silently he consented, and the two rose up and came forth, calm and serene. And calmly and gently did Ruth tell her boy of her purpose, not daring even to use any unaccustomed tenderness of voice or gesture, lest, by so doing, she should alarm him unnecessarily as to the result. She spoke hopefully, and bade him be of good courage, and he caught her bravery, though his, poor boy, had root rather in his ignorance of the actual imminent danger than in her deep faith. When he had gone down, Ruth began to arrange her dress, when she came downstairs, she went into the old familiar garden and gathered a nosegay of the last lingering autumn flowers, a few roses and the like. Mr. Benson had tutored his sister well, 
and although Miss Faith's face was swollen with crying, she spoke with almost exaggerated cheerfulness to Ruth. Indeed, as they all stood at the front door, making believe to have careless nothings to say, just as at an ordinary leave-taking, you would not have guessed the strained chords of feeling there were in each heart. They lingered on, the last rays of the setting sun falling on the group. Ruth once or twice had roused herself to the pitch of saying good-bye, but when her eye fell on Leonard she was forced to hide the quivering of her lips and conceal her trembling mouth amid the bunch of roses. "'They won't let you have your flowers, I'm afraid,' said Miss Benson. "'Doctors so often object to the smell.' "'Oh, perhaps not,' said Ruth hurriedly. "'I did not think of it. I will only keep this one rose. Here, Leonard, darling.' She gave the rest to him. It was her farewell for having now no veil to hide her emotion. She summoned all her bravery for one parting smile, and, smiling, turned away. But she gave one look back from the street, just from the last point at which the door could be seen, and catching a glimpse of Leonard standing foremost on the step, she ran back, and he met her halfway, and mother and child spoke never a word in that close embrace. "'Now, Leonard,' said Miss Faith, "'be a brave boy. I feel sure she will come back to us before very long.' But she was very near crying herself, and she would have given way, I believe, if she had not found the wholesome outlet of scolding Sally for expressing just the same opinion respecting Ruth's proceedings as she herself had done not two hours before. Taking what her brother had said to her as a text, she delivered such a lecture to Sally on want of faith that she was astonished at herself and so much affected by what she had said that she had to shut the door of communication between the kitchen and the parlour pretty hastily, in order to prevent Sally's threatened reply from weakening her belief in the righteousness of what Ruth had done. Her words had gone beyond her conviction. Evening after evening Mr. Benson went forth to gain news of Ruth, and night after night he returned with good tidings. The fever, it is true, raged, but no plague came nigh her. He said her face was ever calm and bright, except when clouded by sorrow as she gave the accounts of the deaths which occurred in spite of every care. He said that he had never seen her face so fair and gentle as it was now, when she was living in the midst of disease and woe. One evening Leonard, for they had grown bolder as to the infection, accompanied him to the street on which the hospital abutted. Mr. Benson left him there and told him to return home, but the boy lingered, attracted by the crowd that had gathered, and were gazing up intently toward the lighted windows of the hospital. There was nothing beyond that to be seen, but the greater part of these poor people had friends or relations in that palace of death. Leonard stood and listened. At first their talk consisted of vague and exaggerated accounts, if such could be exaggerated, of the horrors of the fever. Then they spoke of Ruth, of his mother, and Leonard held his breath to hear. They say she has been a great sinner, 
and that this is her penance quoth one and as leonard gasped before rushing forward to give the speaker straight the lie an old man spoke such a one as her has never been a great sinner nor does she do her work as a penance but for the love of god and of the blessed jesus she will be in the light of god's countenance when you and i will be standing afar off i tell you man when my poor wench died as no one would come near her head lay at that hour on this woman's sweet breast i could fell you the old man went on lifting his shaking arm for calling that woman a great sinner the blessing of them who were ready to perish is upon her immediately there arose a clamour of tongues each with some tale of his mother's gentle doings till leonard grew dizzy with the beatings of his glad proud heart few were aware how much ruth had done she had never spoke of it shrinking with sweet shyness from overmuch allusion to her own work at all times her left hand truly knew not what her right hand did and leonard was overwhelmed now to hear of the love and the reverence with which the poor and outcast had surrounded her it was irrepressible he stepped forward with a proud bearing and touching the old man's arm who had first spoken leonard tried to speak but for an instant he could not his heart was too full tears came before words but at length he managed to say sir i am her son thou thou her bairn god bless you lad said an old woman pushing through the crowd it was about last night she kept my child quiet with singing psalms the night through low and sweet low and sweet they tell me till many poor things were hushed though they were out of their minds and had not heard psalms this many a year god in heaven bless you lad many other wild woebegone creatures pressed forward with blessings on ruth's son while he could only repeat she is my mother from that day forward leonard walked erect in the streets of eccleston where many arose and called her blessed after some weeks the virulence of the fever abated and the general panic subsided indeed a kind of foolhardiness succeeded to be sure in some instances the panic still held possession of individuals to an exaggerated extent but the number of patients in the hospital was rapidly diminishing and for money those were to be found who could supply ruth's place but to her it was owing that the overwrought fear of the town was subdued it was she who had gone voluntarily and with no thought of greed or gain right into the very jaws of the fierce disease she bade the inmates of the hospital farewell and after carefully submitting herself to the purification recommended by mr davis the principal surgeon of the place who had always attended leonard she returned to mr benson's just at gloaming time they each vied with the other in the tenderest cares they hastened tea they wheeled the sofa to the fire they made her lie down and to all she submitted with the docility of a child and when the candles came even mr benson's anxious eye could see no changes in her looks but that she seemed a little paler 
the eyes were as full of spiritual light the gently parted lips as rosy and the smile if more rare yet as sweet as ever end of chapter thirty three